0: Good morning and welcome again to In-Town Church. We're so glad to have you in worship this morning. And happy Mother's Day. Uh, is we, We're talking this morning about sacrifice, about the cost of discipleship and self-sacrificial life-giving to others. And you're an example for us all. And thank you, mothers, who give your life away to your children and uh, enable this church, participate in this church in raising a godly heritage. So happy Mother's Day, and I hope it's a wonderful, relaxing day for you all. If you're visiting with us, we have been going through an extended study of the gospel of Luke, and we come now to Luke chapter 9. Let me read the passage for us, and then we'll begin. This is Luke 9, 18 through 27. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowd say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked? Who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Truly I tell you, some are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. In June of 1939, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor in Germany who was opposing the build-up of the Nazi regime. And he's, his life was at stake. And some American friends got him out of Germany to safety. But he soon felt conflicted about being in this safe place. He felt that he couldn't stay away from Germany, that he had to return. His heart belonged to his friend's his fellow Christians there in Germany, and he writes to his friend Reinhold Niebuhr. He says, "I shall have no right to participate in the reconstruction of Christian life in Germany after the war if I do not share the trials of this time with my people." He went back and was arrested by the Gestapo, sent to prison, and then later to two different concentration camps. In a hearing before. The Gestapo, he's defenseless and powerless. He's powerless before this totalitarian regime. But he openly admits that as a Christian, he is an implacable enemy of Hitler. Although he was continually threatened with torture and with the arrest of his parents, his sisters, and his fiancé, he defied the Nazi regime all the way to his death. He went steadfastly, calmly, and with dignity to an execution, and he was hanged. Writing before his death, he says that he never regretted the decision to follow the call of Christian discipleship and to go back to Germany and to give his life for this cause, to stand up against oppression and evil. He says, I am sure of God's hand and guidance. You must never doubt that I am thankful And glad to go the way which I am being led. My past life is abundantly full of God's mercy, and above all sin stands the forgiving love of the crucified. This morning, we're asking the question of who is Jesus? Dietrich Bonhoeffer had a very particular, very definitive answer to that question. It wasn't theoretical, it wasn't abstract but it was very practical and very costly. We're looking at three questions this morning, two of which are found directly in the passage. What do they say? What do you say? And what does Jesus say? What do the crowds say about Jesus? What do you say, Peter, about Jesus or follower, in-towner? And what does Jesus say about the Christian life and about who he is? Let's pray as we begin. Father, I pray you would guide us as we consider the costly demands of what you have done on our behalf. That it calls us not just to contemplate the gospel, but to participate in what you're doing on earth. That the call of the gospel is costly and even deadly. Lord, give us courage. Give us hope. Let us see that life is actually found in giving up our rights, giving up our life for the cause of the gospel. I pray you would give us courageous hearts, that you would give us eyes and ears to see and hear what you would want us to in this passage. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The idea of mistaken identity has been used uh, since ancient times in comedy, in drama. And on the stage, and it can be very funny on the stage, but in real life, it can be very serious. We read or hear stories almost weekly about convicts that are on death row or serving life sentences, being exonerated by DNA evidence or by a new witness that comes to the case. They've given years of their lives to mistaken identity. Jesus is saying, do these crowds, do you know my real identity? Who do they say I am? Who do these crowds say that I am? Well, of course, Jesus knows well and good what they say about him. He's not trying to gather information. He's trying to make a point that there's lots of people gathering around Jesus, lots of people that are forming opinions of him. Some of them are very biblically informed. Others are informed by just what they want Jesus to be. They have Jesus in a box and they say, Jesus is this, Jesus is that. Jesus can't say this. He can't command that. Some are biblically informed. Some are just informed by the self. But most of them, and like most of us, it's a combination of the two. On one hand, Christians mistake Jesus' identity, and it's caused us to use him for our political crusades, military crusades, theological crusades, mistaken identity of who Jesus is. Others outside the church would say, well, Jesus is a fine person. He's a good moral example. He's one among many options. happens inside the church and outside the church, mistaken identity. Who do you say I am? And Jesus gives us a very radical, very specific description, one that inevitably leads to death. Maybe not an actual dying like Dietrich Bonhoeffer or like Jesus, but certainly no less total of a dying to self. Our passage comes right on the heels of some of the most famous miracles that Jesus uh, did and performed. The raising of a dead girl the healing of a woman who is bleeding the feeding of 5000 these are stories that if you're in the church for very long you're familiar with these great miracles and the crowds are coming people are flocking to Jesus to see the spectacle they're coming to him with questions he's saying i have their attention but do i have their allegiance i have your attention but do i have your allegiance What do they say about me? Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. Luke's point of view on the crowds is that they respected Jesus. They're connecting him with some of their great stories from the past, some of their heroes, that maybe this is a return of Elijah. Maybe this is one of the prophets from long ago. They're commending Jesus. They're esteeming him. They're admiring him, but in some way they didn't grasp who he really was. There's a mistaken identity. They came out to see Jesus, to pay him respects, but not, not to come and drop everything, to follow him along the road of discipleship. And what Jesus is saying is that the crowds don't get it. If you understand what he's really saying, you won't just be interested. You won't just be enthusiastic. You won't just be a faithful attendee. You'll either give. You'll either believe and give up everything, all of your possessions, all your perspectives, all your presuppositions. They'll all be done away with, or you'll just reject him out of hand. But it can't be the middle, and that's what Luke is saying about the crowds, that they were in the, in the middle, neither rejecting him nor receiving him fully on his terms alone. Are you part of the crowd this morning? You've been coming for a while, maybe your whole life you've been in church. You consider yourself a follower, but your faith doesn't cost you. It doesn't demand anything. It doesn't command your time. It doesn't insist on you serving others. It doesn't require you to be sent into the world by Jesus to seek out the hurting places and to bring his gospel to bear upon them. Maybe you've been coming for a while. Maybe you're a Christian, but really you're just part of the crowds. You like the show. You like the spectacle. You like some of what Jesus has to say, but you haven't committed fully. Or maybe you've been coming and just kind of looking into the things of Jesus. You've been investigating what he has to say. Maybe you're intrigued by his historicity, by some of the mystique and the mythos of the church. But you say there are things that you won't allow Jesus to say to you. There are commands that you won't allow him to make. You're kind of investigating, you're poking in around the edges, but you're not yet willing to go wherever the trail leads. You're not willing to follow Jesus as he really is, but only as you want, expect, hope him to be. And it's perfectly understandable. We all do this, Christian or not. I do this. But Jesus is saying that to really know him, you have to answer the question rightly. Who do you say that I am? We have to check our presuppositions at the door, our preconditions of what we expect Jesus to be, what he can be to us, we have to be open-handed. And this is actually the basis for any genuine relationship. You let a friend, you let a loved one define themselves. You don't force them to be who you want them to be or who you think they are, but you adjust, you learn, you change, you allow them to be authentic and to define Themselves. And that's what Jesus is asking all of us to do this morning, not to stand in the crowd, but to come near, to come near to him and allow him to be who he is and not who we want him to be. What do the crowds say? What do they say? But then he changes the question. What do you say? But what about you? He asked. Who do you say I am? Now, this is where Steve left us last week and so graciously obligated me to explain this huge theme of Scripture. What is the Messiah? What does it mean that Jesus is his anointed one? Well, Luke has been building up in his narrative to this very moment. And we've seen two very critical pieces of the narrative. One that we looked at in Advent, the birth narrative, where the angel of the Lord announces that Jesus will be the Messiah in religious and political terms, that he will be the ruler of an everlasting, ever-expanding kingdom. And then later, Jesus is anointed by the Spirit of the Lord to carry out the work of salvation for all of God's people. Jesus is God's anointed king to bring forth salvation and to rescue the world, to bring salvation to all of creation, to bring his good news to bear upon everything that's sick and sad about this world. And Peter is saying, that's you. That's you, Jesus. You are the Messiah. You are God's anointed one. You are the long-awaited king but he gets the title right, but he quibbles with the tactics. He gets the title that Jesus is the Messiah, but he doesn't agree with the tactics, with Jesus' strategy. In Mark's version of this story, Jesus actually rebukes Peter because Peter doesn't understand. He won't go that way with Jesus. He won't let Jesus be who Jesus is. Peter is saying something very orthodox about Jesus. You're the Messiah. He's very theologically correct, but he wants to believe it his way. He's not willing to adjust his expectations of who Jesus is and what he's come to do and how he's going to go about it. Peter had been taught from birth that the Messiah would come and ascend to the throne of Israel and defeat evil and injustice in a very triumphant and very sudden action. But what does Jesus tell Peter? Peter, disciples, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter, everything that you've hoped for is coming true, but not in the way that you expected. Friends, we know that we're encountering the real Jesus when we have moments like this. When what you thought about Jesus has to be jettisoned, when long-standing commitments have to be rearranged, when things that you thought were settled long ago have to be rethought, when Jesus is challenging you daily to change your perspective, to change your agenda, when you're bumping up against Jesus in that way, then you know you're coming to the real thing. He says, I'm a king, all right, but not like any king you've ever imagined. I'm the king who's come to die, not take up the sword, but to lay down my life, not to grasp power, but to give it up, not to rule, but to serve. As we are taking up this challenge to ordain new elders following the sermon, this is probably the most relevant portion of the passage for these three men. And so if you are one of those that is being ordained this afternoon, you're called to model Jesus. You're called to bring his life, his mission, his ministry, his methodology, his tactics into the life of the church. And throughout most of church history, you've simply been called elders. But someone had this idea in the 19th century to add a modifier to that, ruling elders, and with as much respect as I can give to the forebears that came up with that, if you gave me a list of 10,000 words to modify your role, to describe your role, ruling probably wouldn't make the list. Ruling speaks of entitlement, of privilege, of chain of command. and implies that your job is most defined by making decisions and making pronouncements and ruling over the flock. It's not. If you want to lead like Jesus, then lead us in serving. Lead us in giving up your rights rather than clinging to them. Lead us in sitting with hurting people, in bringing our king, Jesus, the suffering servant, to be present in people's lives. Of course, the church needs administration. Of course, decisions have to be made. Of course, future plans have to be developed. But you'll be helpful in those areas only insofar as you lay down your life for the sheep, as you daily work out the sacrificial, cross-centered work of Jesus in people's lives. Scott, Ben, Jeff, wherever you guys are, incarnate yourself into the actual needs of people of in-town and the people in our community, and then you'll be effective in making decisions then you'll be effective in administration. Then you'll be effective in charting out, along with Steve and I, the future plans of InTown. When you sit with hurting people, then you can make decisions on their behalf. Now, you have an added burden that you're taking on yourself this morning because you are officially carrying the burdens of this church and carrying the burdens of specific people, but really... The foundational demands of your life because of your commitment to Jesus is no different than anyone here. Jesus says, since I'm a king on the cross, elder, if you want to represent me, you must go to the cross. And since I'm a king on a cross, Jesus says to all of us, if you want to follow me, you must go to a cross. What do the crowds say about me, Jesus asked? What do you say And then finally, what does Jesus say? How does he define himself in the way that we come to him? He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Three things, deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. Briefly, each of those. Deny yourself. It means to set aside every way that you have defined and constructed life Before now, in the ancient world, you built your life, you built your identity upon your family of origin, your circle of friends, on your marriage, on your property, on your ethnicity, on being in God's ethnic geopolitical body, Israel. And denying yourself meant constructing a wholly new identity based on Jesus instead, based upon your connection with Jesus. And for us, maybe it's not family. Maybe it's not nationality, maybe it's not ethnicity, but maybe it's our tattoos. Maybe it's the music we listen to. Maybe it's where we live, our political party, our cause. And Jesus is asking each of us to take up an entirely new identity, that your identity is your membership in His new community, in His body, that your identity is your connection with him, your connection with the cross, that your life is now centered not upon your own agenda, but upon his message and his mission. That's deny yourself. Take up your cross. Ancient context, literally referring to the victims carrying the crossbeam to the place of execution. In Luke, it's a metaphor for daily reconsidering life. A daily commitment to live as if you had been sentenced to death on a cross. That you're dead to everything that opposes God in your life and in the world. And then follow me. Accompany me on the road. Join me in what I'm doing. Let your agenda be co-opted into mine. See your life through my mission. You see, friends, the Christian life is not simply contemplation. If you want to follow Jesus, it's contemplation and participation. Every time we share the gospel at this church, we want to connect it with new life. We want to connect it with now, so what? And that's what Jesus is doing here. So what? What do you say about me? If you say that I'm the Messiah, you will do this. You will deny yourself. You will take up your cross daily, and you will follow me. Why? Why would anyone want to do that? Why would anyone subject themselves to that kind of life? For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life, for me, will save it. In recent weeks, we've heard a lot in the news about a double agent, a British double agent that penetrated this terrorist cell and interrupted this mission to bomb an airliner. Now, what does a double agent do? A double agent has to earn trust. They have to inhabit this terrorist cell and convince them that they're one of them. They have to maintain secrecy. They live their everyday life in light of a larger goal. What is the goal of a double agent? It is to intercept things like that. It is to protect the lives of the innocent. Every decision that they make is made in light of a higher goal, and they risk life and limb and even torture to protect innocent life. That it's much more, that that story, that mission is much more compelling to them than even protecting their own life. That it's much more compelling than living a comfortable life back home, outside of the warfare. They give their lives to this greater mission. Now, what if the double agent gives up? What if the double agent just settles for this life that they've become accustomed to in the terrorist cell? What if they say, oh, by the way, I work for Britain and now I'm gonna work for you? Well, they'll probably save their life. They'll be allowed to live and they'll be used. They may be even given a very luxurious life. They won't kill you, but you have to make peace with everything that they give you. You have to make peace with giving up. You have to make peace with being a traitor. You have to make peace with denying the very cause that you, gave, that you stood for. You'll maintain your life, but the price will be the integrity of your soul. You'll look around at the things that the enemy provided you, and you'll remember that they were given to you because you, were, you committed treason. Maybe it's a life lap of luxury, but you'll always know, you'll always remember what you gave up to get it, and it's tainted, and it haunts you. What good is it, Jesus says? What good is all of these things if you give up your soul in order to get them? If you lose yourself in order to gain all of these things, what good is it? What good is it if you have everything this life has to offer and yet your soul is twisted and corrupted and turned in on itself? What good is it if you get the world's acclaim and yet your inner life is distorted and fractured? What good is it if you get everything you pursue but you lose who you are? Every culture points to certain things and says, if you have those, you'll have a life. If you have that, you'll have a self. If you get this, then you'll be valuable. It's all performance-based. If you work hard enough, if you do enough, if you vote the right way, if you listen to the right music, if you adopt the right community, then you'll be valuable. Then you'll know who you are. Then you'll be truly human. And it's not true. It's a lie. Jesus says you'll never acquire enough, you'll never do enough, You'll never be enough to satisfy your soul. And whatever you build yourself on, whether it's a relationship, whether it's a career, whether it's possessions, if anything goes wrong with any of those things, you'll find that you don't have yourself anymore. You're always living with anxiety because what if this relationship goes away? What if this career that I've staked my happiness on doesn't turn out the way I think it should? But what you do with the gospel, what you do with Jesus is not simply reject these things, these methods of building yourself, and then adopt a religious thing. It's not that you begin to build your life on Jesus instead. That's still an act of the will. It's just changing the channel. Now you're saving yourself with spirituality, with the religious agenda. And it's much worse because things are hidden. Things are not so much so apparently evil anymore. If you walk out into the world, if you go to a movie, even, you'll be critiqued about greediness, about materialism, about building yourself on your career. Even in the secular world, you'll hear those messages. But if you make it about religion, if you make it about Christianity, if you make it about moralism, if you build your identity on those things, then it's so much worse because. You deceive yourself, and it's not obvious then so much anymore. Your agenda is still supreme, and you're just asking Jesus to get your way. You're using him. He's a means to an end. What he says, two things, finally, is that Jesus says, I am a king. I am the long-awaited Messiah. I am the king that has come. And so, therefore, lay down your life to him. Therefore, bend your knee to him, to his agenda. Give up your self-determination. Give up your control because he is a king. You give over control of your life to him. He is the king. It's perfectly logical. He demands everything. But he's not just a king. He's a king on a cross. You don't submit just because you have to, but because he lays down his life for you. He says, I will give up everything to have you. I will go to a cross for you. Now come and be a part of my kingdom. Do you see, friends, he's not just a king, but a king on a cross. He has every right to make every demand of every part of your life. And yet instead of doing it with power and with rule and with that sort of authority. He says, I will give up my life. I will win you over. I will bring you into my kingdom. I will lay down my life. He is the king that goes to a cross. And that's the type of king that we serve. And new elders, as you come on board to serve, go to the cross. Go to the king's cross. Give up your life. Give up your rights so that you can serve this church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for meddling in our lives, as painful as it might be, as troubling as it might be to see how we have built and constructed so studiously our own agenda, our own identity. Lord, we pray that you would wrestle it from our hands, that you would see that to get life, to get joy, to get foundational happiness, we must give up our rights to it. We must give up our claims upon it and let you do what we have tried so hard to do for ourselves. I pray that we would see that through your life-giving work on the cross. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.